Welcome to the Dev Ready Podcast, where we're helping non-techs build better tech. Today, we have Kurt Alexander joining us. Kurt, thanks for joining us, and welcome on the podcast. No worries. Thanks, Andrew, and much appreciated for having us on today. Yeah, I no, really appreciate it. And Kurt is the founder of Quick Safety. You're an electrical app that helps with compliance, Kurt. Tell us a little bit about, Kurt, how you got involved in Quick Safety, and a bit about your background. Well... As you can tell by my voice, I'm not a, a native Australian by, by any means. I actually was born and raised in the U.S. That's easy yes. to tell. And you, know, you wouldn't believe, but I've been here for 32 years now and um, haven't dropped the accent at all. So there's there's no hope for me at all. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I was born and raised on a ranch in Wyoming. Beautiful Wyoming. upbringing. Nice country right in the middle of the Rocky Mountains. But we had to do everything ourselves because we lived so far out of town that, you know, if something broke, we had to fix it. If mm-hmm. something went wrong, we had to take care of it. And we had to use limited resources and limited tools on hand. So I guess that's probably where my analytical nature started from, is always looking at trying to adapt and make things better. From there, when I graduated high school, I went into the U.S. Navy and joined the Nuclear Submarine Force. So Spent six and a half years in nuclear submarines off Charleston, South Carolina. And that was an amazing adventure. I mean, you you talk about somebody who's who's probably only seen the ocean once or twice in their life in Wyoming. And and then going straight to the U.S. Navy on nuclear submarines and going under the water was totally forward to me. um, What was the best part of that experience for you? Oh, you know, when you're... What was I? I was 17. I just turned 18 when I joined. So, you know, 18, you want to take on the world. You want to conquer everything. And it was just a, a big adventure and a, and a big, um, it's a big boys club. I mean, it was, yeah, okay. it was one of those things to where, <laughs> yeah. you know, everybody in, in a submarine, it's a very tight knit community. So it's, it's similar to the special forces like the seals. Yes. And mm-hmm. so we got to know each other really well. You know, there was 90 of us that would go out as a minimum 80 to 90 and then a max of 120. So and there wasn't the separation between the enlisted and the officers. So I was enlisted. So, you know, it was a very comfortable atmosphere, a great learning experience. Absolutely fantastic. I wouldn't have told it for the world. So I actually went in under the advanced digital and laser technology section and was in sonar underwater sound. So. We knew exactly what was going around in the big pond all the time because we mm-hmm. had to have the same security clearance as the captain. So yeah, uh, we had to get all the intel on who was out there in the pond. Mm-hmm. And so that was super exciting. But I really enjoyed the electrical and electronic side of it. I really enjoyed digital circuitry and trying to understand and trying to adapt it to different situations. And and the U.S. Navy is very very proactive on preventive maintenance. And it's something that I've always taken with me in my three business, three businesses that I previously owned here in Australia prior to quick safety mm-hmm. is that same approach. So yeah, it was a, it was a great opportunity. Oh, definitely. I've been inside. Very much. I was in Hawaii and went and jumped in uh, one of those submarines down there. That was interesting. And being uh, living in one of those would be very confined. <laughs> How did you find doing that, <laughs> living there? And how long would you spend on on the actual ship itself? Well, I mean, we 
first question, I guess, is uh, yeah. how do you deal with it? And so mm -hmm. when you when you volunteer, I mean, back then that was yeah. 1980, and uh -huh. you had to volunteer, and then and then you got paid extra. So you got hazardous duty pay, which I think was about uh -huh. five dollars and eighty six cents a week extra. Okay, uh, sounds like a lot, paid. doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, but they you know they do a whole bunch of psyche valves. They put you in front of psychologists, and they and they they really uh -huh. drill down to make sure that you don't have any sort of anxiety or any sort of claustrophobia because the moment they see that you're immediately ejected out of the program. So yeah. even before yeah. you get I guess to the that, submarine. They don't want people breaking underwater with nowhere to go and inducing yeah. a panic. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, where are you going to go? For sure. Mm -hmm. And and that process worked extremely well. I mean, in my six and a half years on a submarine, we only had two people that actually broke down while underway, but they were primarily from different pressures. They weren't the pressure of being claustrophobic. They were pressures of qualifying and being under so much pressure from the command. Okay, different okay. pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally different. So uh, mm -hmm. their program of actually vetting people about being claustrophobic was extremely good. So yeah, I mean, the longest time that we've been out to sea, so I was on what's called a fast attack submarine. So that's the ones that actually go out on their own and do a do a classified mission and then come back. So the oh. other type of submarines are the fleet ballistic missile submarines. Uh -huh. So they're the ones that have the 24 nuclear missiles in the silos and they go out and they sit in this little box in the ocean. And if nice. they hear a noise, they go the opposite direction because they don't want anybody to know where they're at to yeah. where we, if like we Crimson hear. Tide. What's that, sorry? <laughs> like Crimson Tide, the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, watching. exactly, exactly. I mean, Hunt for October is a very classic... <laughs> movie um, <laughs> yes. and, and very well done as well. I mean, because that was, I mean, I served during the Cold War, so it was probably right in the peak oh, of yeah, the so Cold that War. Been... And so it was always us right with you, Russian. that one. Yeah. So that kind of Cold War atmosphere, I mean, if we heard a noise somewhere in, in my submarine, on a fast tech submarine, I mean, we chased it down and we found out what it was and we did all these other things along with it. So, so 89 days was the longest that we've stayed submerged. And oh, so we, we only had good. like six hours to go to get a, a deployment ribbon, which is very hard for a fast attack submarine to get. But the captain went into Toulon, France, um, you know, like six hours short of us getting our ribbon. And we were all so cranky. Because <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> 90 days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice work. Oh, that would have been a, a, yeah, an interesting experience. And yeah. Quite eye-opening, I would imagine, being out there and um, hunting down things, not knowing where you are and what's going on. But you were on the sonar, so you'd have a bit good understanding of what was happening in this place. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and that's where I loved what we did because our mm -hmm. job changed yes. every day. I mean, it was like mm -hmm. driving down a road. You don't know what car you're going to see, what scenery you're going to see. You don't know what turn you're going to take. But basically, you... You know, it's kind of like a GPS. You know where you're going to, whereas, you know, friends of mine on the sub would mm -hmm. just go to the same location, check the same dial at the same time every day. And I was oh, like, that all oh, they did? Gosh. Yeah, okay. <laughs> just monitoring, equi monitoring equipment. Yeah, well. yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a vital <laughs> job, but it just, I'm so thankful that I didn't get into that rank, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you, you struck the, you pulled the right way. straw. <laughs> made it Exactly. Hard. Exactly. So, I mean, with the with the training, I mean, it's usually back in those days, it was either the Air Force or the Navy that had the highest training in digital and laser technology. And so during the time I went through, the Navy had the highest training. And so mm -hmm. 
the first two weeks of my course, which was all about digital and laser technology and the latest stuff, we had a 75% dropout rate in the first two weeks. Well, so it was extremely pressure sensitive and really racked your brain. But thankfully, I got past those two weeks and continued on to my course. In the, in the end, I actually come out as being the highest, highest scored in the class. So um, that, was, that was quite an honor to do as well. Yeah, well done. Him, that's a great people. achievement. Yeah, that's brilliant. So what well, drew, what I was going to say, the dropout rate sounds like the SEALs course. Oh, no, it's pretty full on. They'd be higher, but... <laughs> well, theirs, theirs was more physical and mental to where yeah. ours was just mainly mental, yeah, mm-hmm. probably just solely mental and not having mm-hmm. to okay. deal with harsh conditions like they deal with. But, yeah, but, it's so, different, but the numbers are high, of course. Yeah, 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 exactly. We we had the opportunity to work with teams two and four on a couple occasions, and um, gee, it was amazing, you know, they... They are absolutely machines, you know. That's a uh, that's a special kind of person, I guess, has to do that. The right mentality, yeah, physical and mental, full on. Mm-hmm. So, just with the with being in that environment, what's some of the like? Are there any moments that you that that come to mind that brought on six like exuberance? Like, what were some of the biggest moments of being part of that? What were certain moments, or was it pretty? subdued in terms of what you were a part of oh no there were there, there were always moments <laughs> yeah, there were moments yeah, okay. there were always especially moments. if you're chasing down pings and oh no it's not you're not hiding yeah no yeah. no exactly i mean we uh-huh. probably two of them probably are uh-huh. the first and foremost i mean i love my time working with the seals that was amazing because yes. we actually yeah. got to do an operation with them and uh-huh. that was amazing to understand their culture and their which is basically the culture that i brought within quick safety so I always wanted to run a small team mentality similar to the submarine leadership, but also more designed around the UDT SEALs. And that's okay. what we do in quick safety. And, and it's worked uh-huh. extremely well. I can't believe how well it's worked. But yeah, so one of the examples were we were going into the Mediterranean. So this was a six-month deployment. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes like we had a year there to where we were out to sea about 336 days of the year. So for the married guys, (laughs) for the married guys, it wasn't very nice, but for a single guys, you know, it didn't matter. But um, so we were going into the Straits of Gibraltar and it's a very narrow passage. And as you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. a submarine, you can't turn it around on a dime. It takes a a big Mm -hmm. area to turn a submarine around. And we were following a contact through the Straits. And when you're doing that, I mean, you're basically right behind them because that's the only place that they can't hear is right behind them because mm-hmm. their propellers mm-hmm. making noise. And so okay. um, <laughs> when you follow that, so it's similar to hunt for red October. So, and then what they do is they do a maneuver. The Russians do a maneuver called the crazy Ivan. So what they do is they <laughs> speed ahead, they turn sharply and they come straight back down exactly the same course they came from. And oh. if you're following that submarine, well, that's not a good place to be. To no, be. <laughs> not if they're coming back towards you. Yes. No, exactly. So <laughs> I was on sonar. I was on the stack at the time listening, and we were monitoring coming through the straits. And so we were going and going, going. And then all of a sudden, I heard cavitation of the screw, which basically means that, that they've started turning. And so we called it out. And so what we did was the captain took us straight down to the very bottom. We were sitting on the bottom of the Straits of Gibraltar, and it's not very deep through there. And so Mm -hmm. we sat there, and we thought, well, maybe he's just, you know, 
he's not going to come straight back at us. And sure enough, he had a zero bearing rate and he was coming straight back over the top of us. And so we're usually listening through headphones that we have an attenuator knob to turn up or turn down. And so we had the actual knob on zero and we, it was just loud as anything on the actual headphones. So we put them, we all took our headphones off and we listened loud as anything of the screw coming right back over the top of our submarine. Wow. Wow, That'd be an experience. I will never know exactly how close it was from them because I mean, what they would have done was they would have ripped the entire sail, the top part of our Uh submarine off and caused yes. massive flooding, and we may not have been able to recover. Oh, wow, that's so, yeah. Especially if you're know, at the bottom. Yes. Well, exactly, exactly. Mm. So, you know, it's one of those questions you want to know. It's like, you know, just exactly how close. How was, close. What's that? <laughs> that? You know? Maybe you don't want to know. No, exactly, for sure, exactly. <laughs> but, but that, I mean, there was always, you know, that was probably the only time that I really feared for my life. Mm. But, but, yeah, just... Loved the crew, loved the officers that were on there, were fantastic. Um, you know, we ate the best out of every service, even our own surface fleet. We ate really well. Of course, when you're down under the water for nearly 90 days, you're running on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And <laughs> you know, you're, not, you're not having seafood and steaks because they won't last that long. But, you know, but yeah, it was, it was a very nice time and um, something that really has shaped and formed my leadership style and how I deal with people was solely from the U.S. Navy. Yeah, and I can imagine it would. And you mentioned that's impacted your businesses now. So jump a little bit into that. So obviously you went in, you were in electronics in the, in the, in the Navy, and then you've obviously taken that through. You've started many businesses, you've mentioned. Can you take us through the journey of those? Yeah, so... I came to Australia just as a holiday when I got out of the Navy. So I just came here by myself and started touring around. And of course, I happened to find my soulmate while I was here. And so, so then short story was, is we went to the state, travels around, got engaged in the States, came back and got married here. And then I've been here for the last 32 years. So okay. in that time, I started working in the electrical industry originally. And yes. So this is where I started seeing some of the issues that the electrical industry faced, which is what quick safety solves. And so I saw the issue, but I thought, well, it's probably not that broad spectrum. It's probably just isolated to a few companies. And mm-hmm. so then I, I worked as an employee originally, and then I started my first business. So my first business that I started was a business that manufactured our own design timber furniture. So okay. we had that business for about 13 years. We were exporting to five countries. We had won Queensland's highest choice, People's Choice Award. We had won Queensland's highest manufacturing award. A lot of great things achieved in that business. But I made the fatal mistake of staying in the business too long instead of on the business. And On the tools too long or just mm, being right in it. Yeah, get that. Mm. Yeah, it, it was it was a critical mistake. And Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I didn't have a nervous breakdown or didn't have any health issues, but I basically disengaged myself from that business. I basically give it away overnight. My accountant okay. was extremely, <laughs> extremely <laughs> upset with me, but but I just I just had to exit as soon as I could. And so there was yeah. this guy that was uh, helping young men and and young fellows, disadvantaged fellows out west in Queensland. And they were wanting to do projects to help fund their um, their programs. And I said, mm-hmm. here, take this. 
run with it, develop, you know, build this furniture, here's all these contracts and go ahead and take it over. So they literally came down with, you know, eight or nine semis and, and took everything and it was gone. Oh, wow. So gave it away, donated it technically. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I like it. I just sewed yeah. it. I just sewed it to somebody yeah, so, yeah. else that was, yes. was doing good yeah. things. I mean, they were doing yeah. things. And uh -huh. um, mm -hmm. so after my accountant got through, you know, being upset with me, I then went and just drove a forklift. So I had my forklift license. I've got some heavy machinery tickets and stuff that I picked up in the electrical industry. And uh -huh. so I just wanted a no-brainer job. And so I went to work for... Broderick's Transport, which is they were doing NQX depots, mm -hmm. and this was out west at Warwick in Queensland. And yeah, so I just started doing forklift work. I would start about two o'clock in the morning, and I would finish around ten or eleven. And from two till six thirty-seven, I was the only one in the entire depot. So I was backing trucks up and unloading them and reloading them, and all by myself, which was great and exactly what I needed. You know, so that's, it's that's interesting. how I kind of recentered yeah. myself. Yeah. I think um, people, when they jump into a business, uh, don't realize how challenging it could be. And I think you touched upon it a little bit there. Sometimes it becomes a little bit overwhelming. Even when it's doing well, it becomes challenging. There's a lot of things oh. to manage uh, when you're in it. There's a lot of things to think about, consider, and you're always evolving. And if you get to a point where you can't anymore, it can end up, end up being that way. If you were to look back, what advice would you give to yourself around that area? And what could you have done differently back then, Kurt? Oh, I think it's, you know, for me, it's probably only a couple of words and that's just step yeah. back. Step back, um, yeah. You mm -hmm. know, I, I really needed to just step back, not being so focused on getting a whole bunch done during the day that I thought was productive because it actually, mm -hmm. you know, to me, it physically brought in revenue. But mm -hmm. to step back and look at the overall business and say, okay, what do we need to do? Where do we need to grow? Where do we need to go? you know, mm -hmm. sort of mentality. And that mm -hmm. stepping back would have would have saved that business for sure. Um, okay. And, you know, but I mean, it was just destined that I ended up being where I'm at with quick safety because that's where my passion lies is. And, you know, we're, we're yeah. now nearly 40 years, well, over 40 years of experience lies within that industry. Uh -huh. you know? Yeah, things happen for a reason. <laughs> Sometimes, obviously, you've, you, you know how to manage and grow a business, which is, not everyone knows how to do that. So we'll dig into a bit about your managing style later because you mentioned it touches upon the Navy SEALs. So I'll be interested in digging in a bit on that mm. too. So after the forklift, the slowing down to time time to clear your head, I would imagine. How long did you spend doing that? And then did quick safety evolve after that? Or was there something else that you went into? So I spent about six months doing that. Yeah. And so it was I a had, good break, you know, basically. Young... It was a holiday. Yeah, it, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was a great break. Because yeah. it made me refocus yeah. on a chance to what, think. Yeah, what do I really want to do? You know. Mm. So I sat back, and I mean, I had two small kids at that stage, and you know, I thought, well, okay, I want to be with them more. So anyway, I then went into project management of a mm -hmm. resort, which actually ended up under contract, which then ended up being the start of our business, Condomine Developments, which was basically a consulting, analysis, and training business. Okay. So we actually went in and troubleshot companies' issues and problems all mm -hmm. the way from manufacturing to finance to business to structure to employees to everything. And and that business then grew and grew, and that actually took me into training globally all throughout Malaysia, Singapore, the Middle East, 
and I was, you know, for about seven years, I was training about 17 weeks of the year in the Middle East. Well, which was fantastic money, but I mean, it's a blooming long way from <laughs> from, from Brisbane, home, isn't from it? From Brisbane yeah, to it the is. Middle East. I mean, going to Dubai was yeah. all right, but then by the time yeah. you had to catch a plane to get to Jeddah uh -huh. or to Riyadh in Saudi Arabia or to Muscat yes. Oman or to Qatar, it uh, it was a long trip, and uh, I had I had many frequent flyer points. Let's just put it that okay. way. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. We've been there once. We um. We won a competition. It was an interesting one. We put a competition together, Anthony and I, and a couple of guys in our office for a design competition, which it ended up us. We were one of the finalists in that for the F1, and we ended up getting some tickets to Abu Dhabi and touring around there. It's a beautiful place, very hot and interesting yeah. place to be. But how did you find going up and back there? It would have been full. It's like fourteen hour flight, I remember from what I recall. Yeah, 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 it was. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I mean, originally I was going through Singapore, so I would do mm -hmm. eight hours to Singapore, eight hours to from Singapore to Dubai. And, Dubai, oh, and wow. that wasn't bad because yeah. I got a chance to get yeah. off the plane, Break. stretch my legs, sort mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah. But then I mm -hmm. I got tired of that, and then the the A three eighties come out, and they were going direct to Brisbane and then I would spend like you said 15 hours straight in, yes. in a plane and mm. that was that was okay but I mean I I thoroughly enjoyed the Middle East um I've had okay. people you know when I first started telling friends you know and stuff they were going what you're going to the Middle East and they were like you can't go to the Middle East with that voice and I was like well I am and uh, <laughs> even, even my family was a little bit cautious you know I said, well, I said well I'm just gonna do it once and let's just see what works and I love yeah. the place from the moment I landed there. It it's great. I mean, the culture is amazing. People are amazing. It gets back to what you hear on the news is not always the the real true thing to believe. Oh, the news is all, all mm -hmm. negative. There's nothing positive in the news. So let's put it that way. Exactly. Um, yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I've I've formed some great friendships with several different companies, with several different um, senior management and and have some really long-term friends in the middle mm -hmm. east and out of all the places i went probably oman is my favorite country in the middle east oman well wow. mm. not a place that i know much about to be honest yeah yeah what's, i mean it's, it's just great there's like everybody in the middle east is friendly i mean people when they go mm -hmm. to the united arab emirates they think okay i've been to the middle east yeah. but that's definitely not the case. <laughs> if, yes, if That's somebody the asked part, me, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somebody yeah. asked me, they said, you know, describe the UAE, and I said, okay, it's basically Indiana Jones in the 21st century, <laughs> and and it, it's this melting pot of all these cultures and all this different influence to where you really can't get to see and understand the real Muslim culture. You know, people going to Dubai or even Abu Dhabi, they go and they, they say, okay, yeah, I've, I've, I've been to a Muslim country. And I was like, well, you've been to a Muslim country, yes, but you haven't experienced the Muslim culture because mm -hmm. there's, it's so watered down with Westernism and everything else, you know? Especially, yeah, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, that's for sure. Mm. They're just built up <laughs> and there's just so much money in those those spots and it's all invested into buildings. And I remember these circle buildings and all these weird places and wonderful places. But yeah, that's yeah. the structure and tourist yeah, attractions. That's all it is. Yeah, <laughs> correct. But it's, it's people in. Ama they're amazing yeah. cities. I mean, in their own right, oh, they they're are. amazing. They're beautiful because, cities. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I would hate yeah. to think of how many cultures at any given mm -hmm. one given time. Like, I used to know the actual 
tourism numbers per day that would pass through Dubai. And it's staggering. I mean, I, I forget what they are now, but it is staggering the amount of people going in and through Dubai mm. every single day. Mm. It's a direct point, right? That we all the fly through either Dubai or Singapore, the two. Yeah, so it becomes a nice hub for them. So they've created one, that's for sure. Mm, for sure. Mm. So after that experience, you mostly had a bit of a, a interesting career. So you've been involved in the Navy, <laughs> building furniture, <laughs> consulting, and then then what's next? So during during the consulting, we started yeah. a third business. So the third uh -huh. business was around retail and a coffee shop. So we owned a yeah. property during the time when I was doing my consulting. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, okay, yes. I'm doing consulting five days a week. Mm -hmm. So I'll fill up my other two days with another business. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I was like, did, did I learn anything from that first business or what? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. Working in it again. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. so we started this retail coffee shop and, and it was great to see and understand that level of business as well mm -hmm. because it gave yeah. me an idea of customers and customer viewpoints and a different thing because I'd never really dealt in, in the furniture business we dealt with customers a fair mm -hmm. bit, but it was it was different in the retail industry. And in the consulting world, I never dealt with customers. I mean, I never dealt with trying to ascertain different customers. You know, I was talking mm -hmm. to the owners and the CEOs and the CFOs from businesses. So that was a, a totally different... Uh, different level. Yeah. Yeah. It's not yeah. consumer. So the retail is more consumer Exactly. Facing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So then from there, I mean, when I was doing the consulting, I offsided in my spare time to electricians. and. Mm -hmm. So uh, we had a local electrician and he'd get, you know, too much work on and need somebody to offsite him and stuff. So I started offsiting for him, for him. Mm -hmm. and there I, I saw this issue with quick safety that quick safety's solved as well. And I thought, my goodness, this is so stupid. Why hasn't anybody solved this? So in 2009, mm -hmm. that's when I took my first steps to trying to see if I could adapt the solution. And, and because it, what we deal with is regulatory compliance. So we're not making electricians do what anything more than what they have to. I mean, this is a federal regulation across Australia and New Zealand mm -hmm. that we're dealing with. And it's it's deemed law to be done on every single electrical job. But then in my case, I would see that sometimes it was done, sometimes it wasn't. And oh. the reason that it wasn't done was is the electricians just put it in the too hard basket or the contractors mm -hmm. said, we don't need to test because we've got 132 years of combined experience and we don't need to test because we do the job right the first time. And, and that that's, mentality. That's a great way. Yeah. It's not a good mentality, is it? <laughs> oh man. Yeah, no. Mm. <laughs> it really, really yeah. shocked me. I was just like, oh my gosh. So I thought, well, okay, the first thing I had to do was I had to talk with the state electrical regulators and uh -huh. get their approval to go from a written signature. So what happens is, is when an electrician comes to your house or oil and gas infrastructure, anything in between, they do their job and then they're federally required to test at the end of that. And there's a series of eight tests that they have to do. Mm -hmm. And so the, the issue was is when they do this test they then sign off and as a customer you don't get any validation or any transparency in that the electrician just tells you yep she's all sweet to go 
and mm -hmm. and everybody hinges on one person's opinion and and you don't know if they have tested or whether they haven't so when they sign off i knew i had to get because i wanted a digital solution because i knew i wanted to put this into an app for the electricians to use mm -hmm. so i said okay i'm gonna have to approach the state regulators and get their approval for going to a digital solution and replacing the handwritten signature with a secure four-digit pin. So in 2009, that's what I did. I went to every state regulator and sat down with them and said, okay, this is what I'm doing. I want to do this. And some states were very compliant. Some states weren't very compliant. But in the end, I mean, it took about nine months. and nine months, I had them all ticked off. And I thought, okay, great. I've satisfied that. I know that I can implement a digital solution. Brilliant. So, so we started on the journey, basically, of me mentally doing this while I'm doing my other work of then trying to put this together. So like I said, I mean, that was 2009. So it wasn't until 2016 that I got the opportunity to pitch at a competition in Queensland called the Collaborate Challenge. And actually pitch before a group that were running an accelerator. And it was supposed to be that the top 20 companies got into this accelerator. And on the night we pitched, they made the decision that, no, they weren't going to take 20. They were going to take four. <laughs> oh, well. They didn't have 20 then, obviously. So, well, no, they, they had, I mean, they had uh, originally about 365 companies that entered the actual initial round. Okay. And then they they took twenty thirty about took about thirty of us through the two week customer acquisition phase, and mm -hmm. then they let all of those pitch, and then they were going to take the the twenty twenty, and okay. so into the accelerator. And then on the night they said, "No, we're only taking four. And I thought, "Well, there we go," because <laughs> I'd watched because I had watched. We we had a public pitching night. Uh -huh. We pitched individually to the panel during the day so yes. nobody got to see each other's pitch but at the night we did get to see each other's pitch because we pitched in front of the media and different investors uh -huh. so it was a public forum and i was sitting there with my fingers going okay they're through they're through they're through <laughs> and i was like yeah i think well everybody's through so <laughs> um and there's no space for quick safety and so then quick safety was nominated as one of those four and, That's a um, big achievement in 360 something to four. Oh, so, yeah, it was yeah. awesome. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. So uh, I actually pitched two ideas in mm -hmm. that 356. And uh, oh, did you? Okay. So yeah. and and both ideas got in the top 30. Oh well, okay. Good so <laughs> so then once and the top 30 were kind of then put into a, a mentoring phase of proceeding on with that business. So when I had two and I was a sole founder of both of them, uh -huh. they said, no, 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 no. Focus on quick safety. Don't worry about your other business. We'll do that one later. And yeah, I was okay. like, so oh, obviously saw okay. some value in that clearly. Yes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, cause people look at what we've done and they go, Oh my gosh, this is so mm -hmm. simple. And I said, well, yes, the, the actual process that, that, you know, what should happen is simple, but I mean, We've just spent nearly four years in developing our commercial product. So <laughs> I, I know why no one else has touched this issue because, mm. because it's, it's really complex. And so that's how we got our start. So we had Blue Chili, which ran the accelerator. Uh -huh. um, we had Chamber of Commerce Industry Queensland. We had mm -hmm. Suncorp Metway Bank. And we had Artesian. Okay. So 
big Artesian names in there. On, yeah. yeah, so Artesian's been on our cap table as well as Blue, Blue, Blue Chili, Chili since the very conception. And Artesian has always helped us in our follow-on rounds as well. So they've oh, been a big good. proponent of quick safety. What happened between 2009 or 2010 once you got off to that initial nine-month sign-off from all the regulatory boards to 2016? Was, were you working on the idea or was it just something in the back of your mind? It was in the back of my mind, Anthony, that I knew I wanted to do it, but I really didn't know where to go. I didn't know where to start. You know, mm. it was, and and realistically, I mean, if I look at this journey, I, I still have documented about 12 different business ideas. And, and this one was always at the forefront of my mind. The other ones are still bloody good ideas, but this one was always at the front of my mind. But I, I had no idea. Like, I didn't know what a startup hub was. I mean, and I don't even know in that day and age whether we even had such a thing. I mean, because I was out west at this time. Like, I was living in Killarney, which Killarney has 800 people. Right. I don't even yeah. know where Kalani is, actually. Never so, so Kalani sits okay. right on the border. You know, everybody generally knows where Stanthorpe's at. So if you just go basically east of Stanthorpe and the wine country there, then that's mm-hmm. where Kalani sits. And yeah, nice. So, you know, it, it wasn't until I actually got a hold of a group in Toowoomba called Canvas Coworking. And I mm-hmm. thought, whoa, this is an interesting space because these people are all developing stuff and they're sharing ideas and they're you know, telling each other their stories. And I thought, that's awesome. So, and and I really don't know what it was that I read or saw that brought me to that place, but I'm sure glad it did because that was the door open for me to get around like-minded people. I, I wasn't living in Toowoomba at the time, but it was just such a breath of fresh air that Canvas co-working existed and that they were doing this for entrepreneurs and i mean i i still don't call myself an entrepreneur i don't i don't really <laughs> believe in tags and labels but you know just people with ideas and helping them to look at their idea validate their idea everything mm-hmm. like that so that was that was the beginning and that's what brought up the actual pitch comp so what happened was is i was talking to joy taylor who was running and still is running canvas co-working and Tumumba startup and she said, hey, we've got this guy coming up from Brisbane that's going to discuss about an accelerator. And I said, well, what's an accelerator? And she, she, she told me, and I thought, well, gee, that sounds exactly where I need to be. So I came back that night at 7 o'clock and listened to Brett Gohegan from Blue Chili talk about mm-hmm. this accelerator opportunity. And I thought, this is it. And it was only then. So I said to him, I said, you know, there's probably 15 of us in the room. And I said, well, when, when do we have to, what, how do we sign up? How do we put our name in the ring, you know? And uh, he said, well, you got to have a submission in, and it's quite a lengthy submission, but it's got to be in by Monday at 10 o'clock. And this was Friday <laughs> night. So you've got a big weekend ahead of yourself, Kurt. <laughs> I, I had a huge yeah. weekend. <laughs> and, and, and once again, because I, I think on different levels, I thought, well, yeah, I'm going to put two entries in. Because I asked course. him, I said, so how many, how many ones can you put in? And he says, you can put in, in as many as you want, as long as they've got a separate email. And I was like, uh, oh, okay. I've got a couple of those anyway. So. Yeah, I can make another one if I need to. Overachiever, Kurt. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, um, so that's how that all started was yeah. just that one-off chance, Anthony, of, mm-hmm. of being there, right place, right time. But it was more a point of seeking it out. Like, you know, mm-hmm. founders, 
I think in today's age, they think that things are going to come to them. Nothing comes mm-hmm. to us, does it? Man, I'm telling you, if, if that happens, that's awesome. But really, you have to put yourself out there and you have to network, you know, basically. And yeah. the, the achievements that I've had because of networking have been just astronomical. And it's, yeah. uh, and I'll probably, I was going to say good timing as well. Well, sorry, how you said the right time, right place. But mm-hmm. in 2009, this space wasn't as large as it was. It was really the beginning of the app boom. Mm. I could say exactly like 2007, the iPhone two came out and all only web apps. And then it started slowly transitioning into actual mobile apps. And then that ability for everyone to expand and have a device in their pocket that lets you do everything you can think of started to come out. Exactly. So it might've been too early back then is what you're saying, 2009. But one of the key things that you said, uh, seek it out. Yeah. But also the proximity. So you put yourself, in a location where some things can come to you. So you put yourself out there and networked and learnt. And a big thing you said was don't know where to start, didn't know where to start. And I think a lot of people are in that frame of reference, don't know where to start. And I think the best place to start is to just communicate, talk to some people, get out there and network is another thing you said there. So some really good tips there, Kurt. Exactly. I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, now, I mean, back Mm -hmm. then, yes, I did have a laptop. I mean, we had internet. It was probably was dial-up. It would have been super (laughs) slow. But but there isn't the opportunities that founders have now. I mean, you can join groups, you know, everywhere, Facebook, where you Mm -hmm. can join different things. LinkedIn. I mean, LinkedIn is amazing. In in my consulting business that I ran, Mm -hmm. 75% of my business came from LinkedIn back in those days. So, it must have been doing something right on LinkedIn then. Well, it yes. was just yeah. astronomically amazing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know if I could replicate that mm-hmm. now because it's become mm-hmm. more and more social yes. instead of business. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, it, I think it's a downfall. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, the opportunities for founders now to get connected remotely and then to find out what's happening locally, is it's an open field out there. Oh, there's plenty of opportunity out there if you're willing to seek it. So, yeah, you can connect exactly. to anything and anyone um, if you just have a look. If you do a quick Google search, you can find where to start as a, if I have an idea. Just search that and you'll find plenty of places to begin. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. For sure. Google's always a great place to start. So let's dive a bit into that experience. So you jumped into an accelerator. So you're part of the Blue Chill Accelerator. What did that mean? What What was the process that you went through? So incubators and accelerators. So I had to learn the to- you know terminology between the two. And, and I'm so glad I focused on an accelerator because incubators are okay, but an accelerator is really that. It's more personal mentoring. It's an actual mm-hmm. business process. So Blue Chili's accelerator was amazing. Uh, it was amazing because the fact that it had you know, it had been started by people who's been through the industry and and the founder was actually ex-Australian Navy. So we got along really well. Yeah, um, he would have gone along well. Two Navy guys from different parts of the world, but... He seemed to um, like people that were in the... the founder of Blue Chili. Yes. What I was going to say there, um, we had a chat It just seems to to gravitate that way, Andrew. Yeah. I, I don't think it's any design, but I think you have that military training and that mm-hmm. mindset. I mean, the mm. amount of ex-military and current military people that we have have 
got to know each other and become friends and everything else mm. there is it's it's a i can't put a word to it but it's it's a it's a club it's a it's a knowledge and a respect and an identity that mm -hmm. just instantly bonds you regardless mm. of what country and what culture you come from it's, it's a common and, ground it's a it's shared amazing. knowledge so shared experience we, we started right? blue exactly i mean you could probably find the same thing through you know tech people so you could have definitely you know a, a dev and how they gravitate to people who have the same coding knowledge and language you know and and it's different synergy pockets like that that you can really utilize in your journey as well so blue chili had this i think it was called a 132 program and it's supposed to be 132 steps to go mm -hmm. from idea to actual production and okay. uh, revenue Mm -hmm. So Seb had originally set this up and then it turned out to be when I went through it, it was about it was nearly 400 steps. <laughs> it's growing so pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The name stayed the same, but the, but the yes. process just lengthened. And it was a great concept because it took people who have never been in business and allowed mm -hmm. them to methodically step through the processes and through everything to make sure that everything was done. Mm. I mean, all the way from business name concepts to registration to tax to, you know, all these different things and to understanding about shareholdings, you know, because I've never had a shareholder business before. So mm -hmm. I had a massive learning curve there, plus the tech side of it as well. So I had a huge learning curve there. But I was so thankful that I had that business knowledge from my three previous businesses that that side was really easy for me. Mm. But for someone who came yeah. into it by just being an employee somewhere and now they've got this great idea that's going to change the world, those type of accelerators are amazing because they will just launch you like a rocket because they take you through that business process. And it's, it is a business in the end. And I think... We're, we're here talking to non-techs building tech, but if you're building tech and a tech business, business comes first. Building, building technology is, is the delivery mechanism that is solving the problem and answering the needs of your customer. But everything else around that is there's sales, there's marketing, there's structures, yeah. there's employees, there's whatever it might be. There's so many different facets, not just the product. So there is a lot around it. And tech's just one, one component, really. Mm. You oh, didn't know much sorry. about tech when you tech, yeah. went into the um, startup accelerator, and that was probably a steep learning curve, we imagine? Yeah. I mean, the, the tech side of it, like I said, was probably the most unknown to me because when, when I was developing back in the Navy, I mean, we were still using Boolean. So it was a matter of not knowing anything about coding or how to develop an app and being solely reliant on outsourced experts to mm. ensure that that process happened and happened correctly, which uh -huh. basically has been probably our biggest challenge and, and definitely our most costly challenge. In terms of um, yep. the outsourcing process, how have you found that? Where did you start? Did Blue Chili, were they a part of the initial build? How was that process for you? Yeah, so Blue Chili yep. originally were, that was one of the things is they had a dev team that worked in there. So mm -hmm. I think when I was going through Blue Chili, they had like 30 companies that they were actually working with toward the 
you know, within about another year, they had then 70. And okay. so they had a lot of companies that they were actually developing products for. Um, yeah, well. Some some were developed within Blue Chili, some weren't. But mm-hmm. it was the founder's option. But I mean, from a founder who had no tech knowledge, it was great for me to then just rely on Blue mm-hmm. Chili because it was in their vested interest because they were shareholders to actually help us develop. So so we quickly pumped out an MVP in six months. Okay, pretty quick. Yeah, good. That's yeah, what you want to be doing. <laughs> Not it, building it, for it, 10 years. It was good. It, it was fantastic because yeah. I always knew that electricians don't like complicated. <laughs> you know, mm, if something's makes complicated sense. for an electrician, they're not going to do it. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're, they're just going to say, you know, too hard. I'm moving on. So with the product, I wanted to make it super, super simple. So I did, but I actually made it too simple, which was kind okay. of ironic <laughs> with, with things. <laughs> And what it did was it, it got traction, slowed down, got traction, slowed down. We went up and down this hill and valley principle mm-hmm. for probably three months. Okay. And I started getting feedback. You know, we, we did a whole bunch of pre-customer acquisition stuff about, you know, what they wanted in it and this, that, and everything. So we, we knew what the market needed and because of my experience as well. And that's that's probably one of the key things is my deep domain experience within this sector has, mm-hmm. has been a linchpin for what we have developed. And so then I just said, okay, that's it. We're pulling it. I said, we just, we've got to go back to the drawing board. So once again, I, I took what I should have done in my furniture manufacturing business <laughs> and I, I, I stepped back and I said, oh. hmm, okay, we've made this too simple. So what does the industry really need? And in that, process we've actually come up with what we've commercially developed now which is a much better product because it services not only the electricians but the electrical contractor who they work for and the asset owner so now there's complete transparency all the way up and down that process that the industry has never seen before us oh, so you've opened up the the trans well, open, delivered transparency to the, the yeah, industry basically yeah, yeah get so it. one and mm-hmm. one was the validation as well so in mm-hmm. those eight tests there's two of those tests that run off of really complex formulas so if an electrician is doing this test and they're putting this test meter on to measure let's just say earth fault loop impedance mm-hmm. they have to know the characteristics of that circuit and be able to do that formula and most of these electricians prior to quick safety are just running that through in their head and they're going, oh, that divided by the multiplication factor of those two values times 64% <laughs> is about 10. Yeah. And they go 9.8 on their meter and they go, sweet, it passes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. but, but they didn't know. And, and they just, you know, I'm not here to bag electricians. They just don't have the correct tools in their hand. Mm. So the other way that they combat it is, is they take table 8.1 and 8.2 out of the Australian standards and they take that with them everywhere they go, which that rarely to never, ever happen. <laughs> How big is yeah. table 8.1 and 8.2 to carry around? They're, they're, they're not too big. They're just a single okay. sheet of A3. Yeah, okay. But right, um, yeah. it's, this is the 21st century for goodness yes, sake. Yes, correct. <laughs> you shouldn't be carrying around a piece of paper and we, checking off numbers. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and yeah. that's what quick safety does. It it validates yeah. those that test information to let that electrician know, yes, this does pass or no, this yes. doesn't pass. So it mm-hmm. gives them the confidence that the work they're doing is fully compliant to the Australian standards. 
And, and that was what we wanted to do was to alleviate the risk factor and mm -hmm. ensure safety for the actual project. And, and the, the safety part of it is, you know, integral to what we've done because of the fact that as a homeowner, if your electrical work is not to the Australian standards, the chance of an electrical fire or an electrocution or the loss of power is extremely likely. And two, two point in cases that I'll make is the fact that mm -hmm. my, our son is a hazardous area electrician. So he's done a lot of FIFO work all around Australia, you know, Gorgon project over at Barrow Island in Western Australia. And he came back on the Gold Coast and just wanted to be a residential electrician. So he spent about five years being a FIFO. Mm -hmm. He came back and worked for a local company on the Gold Coast doing simple job. They're, they're just replacing the analog meters with a digital meter, okay? Mm -hmm. Very simple yep. one-person job. In the space of nine months, we almost lost him twice to fatal Whoa. electrocution. Oh, well, in nine in months. months. And the sole reason is, is the last electrician on that job did not do any testing at all. Oh, wow. Because okay. if they would have, it would have shown that the job uh -huh. was incomplete and not to standards interesting it would have showed up the air and so, this is this is the thing that we're trying to combat mm. oh that's no one wants to live their life going to work doing a job that's crazy and if someone's not testing that's they're pretty scary to think that could be a reason yeah. why most people only think the probably implication of not getting that paper signed properly is the insurance well exactly. the risk to all the electricians and tradespeople that come in and out of the house Exactly, Anthony. And that's why, I mean, even now we've approached Zurich insurance. So Zurich this year globally have two mandates that they want to ensure a reduction in the risk of all their insured assets that they're doing globally. Mm -hmm. One is hot works and the other one is electrical compliance. So okay. last week in Switzerland, they had a big talk about quick safety. And now we're looking mm -hmm. at doing case studies across some large industry you know organizations here in australia mm -hmm. to then prove that we can now give the transparency to the insurer that that company or that asset is completely to australian standards because that's the only assurance that you have that you're not going to lose power there's not going to be a potential electrocution or it's not mm -hmm. going to catch on fire and especially with aging infrastructure this is the thing i mean notre dame look at that here in Queensland, I mean, a year and a half ago, we had the state Warwick State High School catch on fire, the building catch on fire while the students were in the building due to an electrical fault. Yep. So these are the things that quick safety prevents, which is why our target market, even though we supply the app to the electricians and the portal to the contractor, our real target customer is actually the asset owner. Because the yeah. asset owner wears the risk. It's it's their money. It's their it's their asset. Mm -hmm. And to try to track back, if you know when the fires come in and do their analysis and they say, okay, well, yeah, this circuit was the one that caught fire. From an asset owner's point of view, in today's society, how do they track back who was the last electrician and what date and time they were working on that circuit, and whether the tests were compliant or not? How do they do that in today's society? People they can't, can't I guess. Yeah. And uh, you've touched upon something that's interesting there. 
and when we're building technology, we focus on our, our end user. End user needs to be served, but sometimes our end user isn't our end customer. Um, I think you yes. may, yeah, and I think you may have touched upon it and learned that during your experience mm. based on what you said. So you designed it for the electricians first to solve their problem, but then you realize that the real customer, the real industry problems sit within this space. So I think something that people can look at is who the real customer is and what the yes. real problem they're trying to solve, who the value is going to be delivered to, not just who's going to pay me $15 a month to enter some data. It's not about that. Where does the value lie? Who's the who's the value for? Yes, you're exactly right, Andrew. And that's that's been the lesson that has taken us probably, well, we were in development for nearly, well, three would have been three years we were in development of the commercial product. Then when we released it and we, well, even pre-release, we were targeting the electricians, the electrical contractors, because they're the users of the product. And then it wasn't until about six months after the release that we finally, once again, stepped back <laughs> and, and said, whoa, this is not working as fast as what we thought it would be, you know? So really who is our customer and that's where we said hey it's the actual asset owners because it's their risk and especially now with last february's change in the workplace health and safety act section 5 and the rulings around uh, the pcbu rulings that asset owner the directors of that asset now carry full responsibility for safety and compliance over that asset and and that you know, everybody thinks, oh, if something goes wrong, I'll just pin it back on the electrician. Well, first of all, in the existing system, good luck with that because mm -hmm. you won't have any documentation to do that. <laughs> That's um, true. And, and second of all, when the electrical safety office, in our case up here in Queensland, takes somebody to court, they're going to take the electrician, the contractor, and the asset owner. And yeah, everybody's going to have to mm -hmm. give an account. And with Workplace mm -hmm. Health and Safety Section 5 now, it's going to be, hey, what steps have you taken as the asset owner to ensure compliance is happening on your asset? And that's so not reliant on the other people who try and be proactive about it. Mm -hmm. mm, exactly. So like, like Andrew said, I mean, I, I think founders get stuck into saying we're building this product and this is who we're building it for. But just be aware of the other people, you know, be aware of, like in our case, insurance companies. Asset owners, insurance companies, they can mandate this system on any asset and it costs them absolutely nothing. So, so this is our path to market is, is forcing a already mandated process, but forcing that transparency to take place on their assets that at the end of the day, there's, there's two options for the asset owner. Yes, they can pay for a digital platform, which we can do all the predictive maintenance and analytical stuff on. But if they just want to ensure that compliance is happening and get a certified third-party product, well, then they can just mandate that and it costs them absolutely nothing. So as a founder, you've, you've got to broaden your vision to look at every single potential connection with that product and how to drive the mentality of the use of that product. Yeah, it's, it's all... And I think you touched upon something there. Drive the mentality of the use of the product is important because mm. the electricians may not want to use this at all and probably don't. It, mm. Like It's another thing they have to do and they're 
generally not interested. But if it's driven from top down, that it has to be used, all of a sudden everybody's using it. Um, and it's easier to probably sell this conversation to the insurance company than it would be to individual electricians that have been doing it for 50 years, I would imagine. Exactly. And I, I mean, it, it yeah. brings into another thing as well is, okay, if you're going to be pushing your product onto somebody, you mm -hmm. have to make it as easy as possible for that user to come on and come off of that system. So tech companies, you know, 90 plus percent are SaaS models because yeah. that's what investors want. Not, you know, that's what, mm -hmm. that's what they, they want that, see that reoccurring revenue because you got somebody locked into a contract, mm -hmm. you got them in for a year or two years at such a rate per month or per user. And so we initially went down that SaaS model. And in that, we then said, hey, okay, let's take and look at a better way. So when we produce this to high-end clients, like big electrical mm -hmm. firms and big construction firms, they love the process, they love the product, but they hated the business model. Mm. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, well, for a start, we can't attribute the cost back to the asset. And I said, I get your point. Because if they're paying however many thousands of dollars a month for a process to be rolled out across all their assets, when they do a construction build of two to three years, they mm -hmm. can't, they, they don't know how much electrical compliance has cost them for that. They have to then take and divide that number by something or whatever they do. Yeah, so easier for them to buy if it's just per site, per asset, per something, I would imagine. So, so yeah, so what, mm -hmm. what do they know? They know how many circuits, how many power cables are in that establishment, how many in that asset. Mm -hmm. So we changed our business model and went to a pay per use per mm -hmm. circuit. Okay. Now, now the electrician knows, now the contractor knows, now the asset owner knows exactly what quick safety will cost them even before they implement it. Yeah, and interesting. everybody's fully aware of that. So this mm -hmm. was another way of looking at this. So, and the thing about it is, is there's no contracts, there's no sign-up fees, there's no setup fees, there's, there's no commitments. So now if an asset structure, a body corporate or whoever mandates this on a site, that contractor, all he has to do is just sign up, put in, attach his electricians, electricians go to that job, do the testing, come off that job. And that contractor never has to use quick safety again. They're not mandated to use it on every other job, but the job that's mandated, it's easy for them to jump on, do that testing, get charged a dollar per circuit and boom, and they're out. Mm, okay. So it's a big shift in business model by the sound of it as well during the process, not just tech. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Okay. They're good learning along the way. And these are some of the things that people need to think about. It's you're walking into developing an idea, which you actually run a, won an award and, an and we're in an accelerator program. And our idea has evolved, basically. You haven't got the first idea right now, do you? It, we, it all continues to evolve. And I think when you jump into New, any business venture and we're in the middle of COVID right now in Melbourne where we are we're completely locked down and industries are changing every every minute right now people are doing business all in different ways and we just need to continue to focus on if you're going to jump into an idea it's going to evolve your first idea is never your right never going to be the best idea and the first tech you build more than likely won't be the tech you stick with long term it will evolve it is a continuous evolution of concept idea and working with customers. 
Exactly, for sure. And that's, I think that's where people tend to get stuck in mm. their mentality of saying, this is the idea and this is the way I want it built. And then mm -hmm. in that journey, they never iterate, they never pivot, they never do anything because they're, they're so focused and fixed on this is the actual idea. Yes. Like you said, Andrew, I mean, the, the idea and the concept and even the product should be developing all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, it should never be a, hey, this is it, we've landed. <laughs> I wish it was that easy. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I think everybody would just say. <laughs> but there's no, you know, what you said there was um, just be uh, like open to it, not so rigid within the process. We obviously mm. have people come to us and just, like you said, they, they want to get a quote on this getting built and this is the product and it's going to take six to five months to build and then we'll have a business and we're off and running. That's not the case. And don't invest all your money into building a product either. Invest into your customers, researching, questioning. Yes. And M MVP is important. Start as small as humanly possible because mm. that first feedback is going to evolve the next iteration of the product. How did you find the first, like the MVP from your perspective, got used, didn't get used, got used, didn't get used, and now it's evolved in a completely different product. And I imagine a completely new tech stack. Oh, completely. I mean, yeah. it, with doing what we started, mm -hmm. what, what I mentally had planned, yes. and once again, not coming from a tech background. So we, we mm -hmm. started to go down this subject of, you know, outsourcing tech assistance and everything else. Because as a founder, unless you've got a tech co-founder who's great at coding everything, then you're stuck with relying on outsourced tech. And mm -hmm. so that's a vital part of a founder's journey as well, is ensuring that your tech company that you're using really knows and understands what you're doing. But on the flip side of that, as a founder, you have to be willing and able to step back and look at their comments and suggestions because a good tech stack company will actually say, hey, I know you want to do this, but <laughs> look at this. <laughs> if we can do this and this, this will equate to this product down the road. And, and a founder has to be able to take that input regardless of who it's from. If they get the right tech stack company, then mm -hmm. that is a massive asset for the founder. Yeah, oh, it's no it. good working with a team of yes people that are just saying yes <laughs> to you and just delivering what you want because that's going to deliver the wrong thing in the end. Oh, yes. I've, I've worked with a few. <laughs> yes, I've, I've been down that road. I'll put my hand up. If they don't understand your product and your business and try to offer ways to improve it and fix things, you're going to end up with the wrong product and not exactly. what your end customers need and the value that your business should deliver. And I think on that, what a good tech company will do is I'll ask you questions like, from a business perspective as well, they want to understand why you're doing things, who your customers are, so they can deliver yeah. you the best outcomes. Because if they're not asking those questions, they're just delivering what's coming out of your head. And if you're coming, like from your perspective, yeah. Kurt, a non-technical person with some domain knowledge, you don't, know, yeah. you wouldn't necessarily know what the best way to develop anything would be, or what the best things to consider, or should we develop an app or a website, or just things to consider. You, you would just set, set on one thing, 
let's develop this and this is what I'm developing. But is that the right thing for the business, for the product, for the customer? These questions should be raised by anyone that's technically working with you. Most definitely. I think I think that's probably where founders get a bit irritated with mm-hmm. external tech companies is okay. they don't think that they think, oh, they're asking all these questions, so they don't really mm-hmm. know what they're developing. That's just the opposite. They're asking the questions to be able to develop better for the actual founder rather Mm. than just blindly, like you said, going in there and saying, yes, I want this app and I want to do this and this. Mm. And and it's taking it. If you can find tech companies that take that time and and it's not an easy process because basically you have to data dump everything out of your head to them to give them the holistic picture so that they can understand from A to Z exactly what you're doing, what you're trying to accomplish, where you think you're going to be able to support you in the best way possible. And once you find companies like that, keep a hold of them. <laughs> yeah, I don't think because... I could have given that advice any better. Yeah, that was yeah. great advice. Yeah. Because then that process... The other thing we get, the other way we get is when we ask these questions, it's some people have the mindset that we're asking just to try and charge them more for a bigger product <laughs> yeah, and not exactly. to understand what they're yeah. after. Yeah. 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 For and sure. I, and I, there's some of the things there. It's the questions. And like you said, the questions are asked. So know the, the whole picture. If someone doesn't think of it this way, if someone doesn't, if the, someone walks onto a building site and they're a carpenter and they don't understand the whole picture of the building and they've just got to build one wall. They might build that wall in a different way than if they knew that the whole picture of the whole plans. So if no one knows the whole plan, you can't get the best value added to what the big picture is. So we need to just, you can't build things in pieces. You need to actually understand the big picture before you can get back to, all right, where do we start even? What is the best place to start? What's the low-hanging fruit for you? If we know the big picture from a tech perspective, we can advise a founder and saying, this is uh, that complex and going to deliver this tiny bit of value. Maybe we should look at that in the future or even consider if our customers really need it. Why don't we focus here because this will only take this, this, and this and deliver the most value and this is what the customers are asking for. And it's all about how you can add value, but until you don't know, if you don't know the whole product, you can't serve the customer the best way, uh, the founder in that in that case. Exactly. I mean, and great analogy too about the the carpenter, because you know if you're developing a tech stack, and you know, let's say you go in with a budget of a hundred thousand or a hundred and fifty or whatever the value is, mm-hmm. it, in my mind, if you're not spending. 10,000, if you're not spending 10% of that in the early stages, just on the introduction, mm-hmm. it's a waste of time because, because the fact that that tech company will do as you've instructed, but it may not be the best solution to your outcome or mm-hmm. give you the longevity for the outcome that you perceive the, the product being in one year, five years, 10 years. Oh, definitely. Um, and, and this is a learning curve that, that we have <laughs> definitely been down. And, and it's one that is very, very costly. I would have liked to have had back hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> of, of, our, of our build. And, you know, if I would ever go into another tech business, I definitely will take massive learn, learning experiences from quick safety because mm-hmm. It's a costly road. If you're not 
prepared for it. It's a costly road. And to realize as well, I mean, people say, oh, yeah, you know, we can do an app for $10,000. Yeah, okay. (laughs) What are you you getting? And and is that going to be usable? Because if it's not going to be usable, Mm -hmm. why start it? There's no point building an app if it's not going to be usable. Doesn't matter how much it costs, if it's a million dollars or if it's ten, twenty thousand dollars, just walk away. You've you said something there around spending X amount of your budget just to clear it up a little bit earlier. I think that's that's massively important because people get concerned and want to jump into just getting a quote on a product and building it. That's okay, but when you're looking to compare to developing technology. Even if you shop that uh, that concept around, every single person you shop it around to that quotes you off the back of a one meeting is mm. going to have a different idea for what that is, yeah. And no concept, no conceptual angle of where it's going, and they're not going to really understand the business, to understanding the the model, what it looks like, and there's no way they can physically do that. When we started Arion, which is our core business. 12 years ago, which was probably around the time you were thinking around quick safety, well, 2008, this is what we, we did. We were naive. We built product off the back of what people told us, and we learned, and we knew that didn't work, and we evolved, and like everyone does, if you stick around a business for that long, you eventually evolve, and you seem to realize that there are better ways to do things, and it is all about investing in, in the start of the project. That's where the hard work's done. That's where the analysis is done. That's where the best thinking is done. If you do that right, the development is the easy part. And that's become very interesting for us. It's shifted the mentality of how we deliver product. Yeah, great. Exactly. And I mean, if you if you look at the, mm-hmm. the cost basis across your entire mm-hmm. business, if you're a tech business, mm-hmm. it's because you have tech. Okay. So, <laughs> so, yeah. so that is the core basis of your business. Yes, you have sales mm-hmm. and marketing and business and administration mm-hmm. and structure and everything else according yes. to with that as well. But that is the nucleus of your business. If you can get and develop the nucleus of your business correctly, those you'll only have to do it once. And then you can slightly iterate that within its own design. But if, if you go down the road and develop tech wrong and then you end up with a whole bunch of legacy code, the next developer comes in, he has to fight that legacy code. There's no structure. There's no notation. There's no automations. Mm-hmm. There's no internal testing. All these different things, which I've learned. Learning, obviously. <laughs> definitely <laughs> a big learning. Those things are critical to your success in going from idea to adoption to mm-hmm. then the actual manufacturing and the release and then the driving the revenue because you want to get from conception to revenue as quick as you can and and in order to do that it's not shortcutting development or shortcutting sales or shortcutting marketing it's actually ensuring that the things that you have in process all along every section of your business is going to be correct and is going to be able to be used and built upon, not thrown away and then mm-hmm. restarted again. You know, so those are the things that really empower a business to get dr- to driving revenue as soon as possible, and it's the smart way to develop. Uh, some great advice there, Kurt. Um, yeah, because I think we can get too quick to jump in and just do, and sometimes we have to step back 
and like you said, step back in this conversation a few times and just step back and think, even at the start of an idea and a concept and a plan, step back, spend the time to evolve it then and you'll establish momentum pretty quickly. But if you go ahead and build the wrong thing, that business could be finished before it even started. So that's not where you want to be as a founder. Your idea doesn't... <laughs> Ideas... <laughs> Ideas are great, but how we execute them is the most important thing in reality. Exactly. And who's behind them, what the team is, what the structures are, and how they're delivered. There are the funny thing is everyone thinks their idea is special. Someone, yes, <laughs> may have that special little idea. Yeah. But be, being involved in this industry, we see multiple people coming to us in a, a small little company in Melbourne uh, with the same idea or similar ideas in the same similar industries, and you're thinking how many idea? How many people have the same idea? Probably everyone's got your idea, so your idea is generally not special. <laughs> it's how you deliver it and how you actually produce it. So put the time yes. in to think and work with your customers to get it right. So some really, really good insights in this conversation, Kurt. Just on the on the last thing, if you were to go back to Kurt of I'd say two thousand and nine, what's what's some of the the one piece of advice you'd leave to Kurt before he ventured into a, building a tech business? Wow, that's a uh, that's a hard question to answer with just one. Because <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I would tell myself a whole book. I would tell myself a whole book. You know, I think you know we we talked a lot about tech, and it, yes. it wasn't intentional. It just kind of was driven yeah. there. You know, it it, mm. it wasn't planned. But you have to be aware of developing a good foundation. Mm-hmm. You know, focus on a good foundation and then add upon that. So I think that would be one piece I would say to my younger self is saying, well, okay. hey, mm-hmm. make sure the foundation's right. And, and, and it goes across every area of your business. It doesn't matter. I mean, whether you're mm-hmm. talking about a CRM or whether you're talking about, you know, an accounting program or whatever, you're talking about tech, ensure your foundation is good good and that can be built on and you'll be miles in front i I think the second thing would be is customer acquisition and i um you know i get asked this in different webinars and different things uh speaking Mm -hmm. engagements and i I think people take the customer acquisition too lightly um Mm -hmm. i think like like you said earlier andrew i think you said it well you said you know i've got this special idea and everybody's going to want it you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it, that's, that's probably not the case. And you have to actually go to your potential, who you see as your potential customers and get them to tell you their story. And this is one of the things that, you know, like quick safety has been through two accelerators. Now we're just accepted into our third accelerator in the U S as of last Friday. Okay. Um, well, congrats. So, uh, so yeah, yeah, we're, we're now in the new chip accelerator, which I'm super excited yeah. about. And, 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 I'm, and I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm not a junkie accelerator fan, <laughs> you know? um, but, but each accelerator has its own benefits and you have to weigh up the benefits of that accelerator. And the new chip one is just absolutely amazing. If, if I was to ever start a business as an accelerator, I, I would do theirs, but anyway, um, so we went through the second accelerator we went through was Mets Ignited. So that was purely for the mining industry. And that was amazing as well. And that was backed by KPMG. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that customer acquisition is, 
you know, some accelerators to like, you know, make 10 questions, go out and ask your customers those 10 questions. And I don't see it like that because if you're asking me questions, I'm going to tell you answers. And if I'm not comfortable with telling you the right answer, I'm going to tell you the answer you want to hear. Mm. You yeah, know? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if you ask me and say, oh, yeah, we heard that inspection and testing in um, the industry is really painful and it's a primary source of, of risk. Uh, do you agree with that statement? Well, then if you're not, not going to want to be honest, you can say, yes, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> just, just, to, just to get the actual questions done so they can go to lunch or do whatever they were going to do, which is why when we did our customer acquisition, we built our questions not around the actual question, but actually around the process. And we got them to talk about their business and them to talk about their relationships and them to talk about their employees and them to talk about their situations. So we gleaned our information of our core five questions from what they told us. And then if they did actually touch on, hey, yeah, you know, inspection and testing, it's it's a killer for our industry because we don't even know if the, the tests are compliant or not at the end of the day. Then we let in with, hey, well, if there was a solution out there, would would you adopt it? You know, mm. and then we got the validation of is it a big enough point pain point for them to actually do something about? So our customer acquisition was different, but it, but it's vital to any business, any founder. I appreciate those two insights there. So the one then the customer acquisition it was interesting around you said talk about your business and process. People, what I found is like to share, love to share about themselves. So asking questions about themselves, yeah. their businesses, people are happy to share. But as soon as you what you the other way is leading the, the conversation and leading the conversation becomes, mm. yeah, do you do this, do this? And people don't like to be prodded, but they'd love to share open-ended questions I've found allow people to open up and share a lot more. So I think it was a good insight in terms of the customer acquisition side. So thank you for sharing those. No worries. So Kurt, really appreciate you coming on the DevReady podcast. It's been a, a great conversation from everywhere from your history back in a submarine <laughs> right through to um, build, in building furniture. <laughs> I found that interesting. You've had a very interesting gamut of industries you've worked in. The one question I haven't asked you yet, which I want to lead with, you mentioned this right back in a conversation around your management styles around Navy SEALs, and you use that in your business. Can you just touch upon that before we end out the podcast? Yeah, I've, I've seen the strength of working mm-hmm. in small teams, but I've never seen any company, and this is just my own personal experience, I've never seen any company really do it successfully. Everybody talks about small teams and everybody Mm -hmm. dreams about small teams and and that. So our approach is is more along the UDT seals. So they have specialists that that are in their core team of seven. So they they have a specialist, you know, they'll have a sniper, they'll have an underwater demolitions guy, they'll have all these different Mm -hmm. intel, they'll have all these interpreters, have all these different things. No one is ahead of anybody else. No one is higher than anybody else. Yes, you do have a leader, mm-hmm. but the decisions are a joint talked about decision. And then the leader takes the lead and takes responsibility mm. and does that. Okay. But it's, but it's a collaborative approach. And, and like I said, I mean, people say, well, yeah, that's what we do in our business. Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I find very few businesses that are that transparent. And that's one thing that we did 
we had two devs working with us last year, two brilliant young guys. Mm -hmm. And they were just longing to get into a company that would listen to their ideas, listen to their concepts, and then jointly make a decision. And and it was amazing the transformation that we have seen in that. And also the thing with the SEALs is if one of those seven gets bumped off and they have to form a six, they form a six without any you know, impedance in their actual progress or their or their mission. Because the other ones know enough of that one that got bumped off to actually fulfill that duty. Mm, and that's okay. what we, we do in quick safety is it's a load sharing. Mm -hmm. Whereas if somebody's out sick for a week or on maternity leave or whatever, the six operate seamlessly and pick that slack up without any interruption. And, and so it's through that mentality with the submarines and with the UDT SEALs that we embed that in our culture in quick safety. Oh, brilliant. And a different way, definitely to think about how you can operate and collaborate within a within a business. And I think if you can drop one off and everyone else can pick up the load and has the knowledge to be able to do so, I think that's very valuable to a business moving forward. So, yeah, yeah good insight. Being multidisciplined and multi-skilled. Mm, correct. I think everybody, I mean, if we look at all of us, I think we all mm -hmm. want responsibility. Mm -hmm. I, well, I, I'll rephrase that. I think we all, <laughs> we all think we want responsibility. But when we have to take responsibility with accountability, then we kind of back out of that. Mm. And then you'll find the real drivers in the team are the people who'll accept accountability and take the responsibility and, and they'll be your key performers. And it's a matter of having that accountability back with that given responsibility to say, hey, if you want to move up in this organization, there's more accountability. If you want to handle that accountability, that's fine. We will teach you. We will train you. We will do everything we can to make you a better person. And one of the things that we do in the interview is saying, well, hey, my goal as a founder, as the owner of this business, is that the day you start working with this company to the day you finish, whether it's a week, whether it's a month, whether it's 20 years, I want you to be a better person than this day. And that's our goal. It's all about people. <laughs> That's what business is, so that's a great way to preface it. So thank you, Kurt. Really appreciate you just diving into that because that's um, a good insight into a way we can think about it because business is people. Um, and if we can help our people grow and expand, they're going to deliver more value to us, the business, to their homes, to their family, to everything. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, once again, Kurt, thanks for joining us on DevReady Podcast. If anyone wants to learn about quick safety, where can they find you and quick safety? Yep, so... Website www.quicksafety.com.au. And if you're in the electrical industry, just search for electrical compliance, inspection and testing, certificates of compliance, anything that you deal with in the electrical industry, and we'll be there on the first page. Well done. <laughs> Thank you, Kurt. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks very much. It's been a real hoot working with both of you, Anthony and Andrew, and uh, a very interesting and enlightening podcast for us all, I think. Yeah, cheers, oh, it definitely was.